0: This is really the story of two men, one a forgotten president, the other his forgotten killer. It's a uniquely American tale of men on opposite trajectories, one born into poverty but risen to the highest political office through his talent and hard work, the other born into a life of advantage but fallen to the lowest rung of society, his only talents for ambition and entitlement their collision dramatically shaped history but then America forgot come back with me to 1881 Salutations! Welcome back to Scalawags, the podcast where I, your host Marguerite, tell you a story about mendacious pettifoggers, pusillanimous scofflaws, and knavish skullduggery. in other words, historical crimes. Last week was all about Hollywood glamour and mystery. Fun times! I got invited to a Thelma Todd fan group on Facebook, and I've been geeking out over their photo collections ever since. This week, there isn't going to be a lot of mystery about what happened, because we know what happened. The real question is, why? But first, my sources. First uh, is a Murderpedia page for Charles J. Guiteau. Second is going to be the um, transcripts, the trial transcripts, including the appellate record of the U.S. versus Charles Guiteau. There's also an excellent article called This is the Brain That Shot President James Garfield. It was published in The Atlantic by Brian Resnick. I also relied heavily on the trial of Charles Guiteau an account by Douglas Linder. It was a 2007 article, but he runs a website called Famous Trials, and it is a great resource because he links to his primary sources when they're available, which is how I found the trial transcripts and such. So it's a fantastic website. i uh, also read articles from All That's Interesting, Britannica.com, the previously mentioned FamousTrials.com, one from the Smithsonian called The Stalking of a President. There is also an article from the Altoona Tribune that was published in 1882. Gotta love that Newspapers.com subscription. And a book. I highly recommend this book. It is Destiny of the Republic a tale of madness, medicine, and the murder of a president by Candace Millard. It's really the story of James A. Garfield, but you can't tell his life without the ones that intersect, particularly his assassin, but also all the medical personnel who treated him, which becomes a really important part of the story, as you will see. If I asked you to name presidents who were assassinated while still sitting, It's not hard. There were only four. And you could uh, probably rattle them off. Lincoln, Garfield, McKinley, and Kennedy. As to the assassins, I'll bet you can name two of the four. But what about the man who killed James Garfield? Anyone? Charles Guiteau was born September 8, 1841. Let's pause for a minute to reflect what a baby country the U.S. is here. It's pre-Civil War uh, in 1841. Slavery is still the rule. There's not even a national anthem yet. Canada is still a colony. New Zealand becomes a colony this year. El Salvador proclaims that they are an independent republic. But Charles was the fourth of what would be six kids and moved to Wisconsin when he was young. His mother, Jane, had always suffered from some sort of mental illness marked by psychotic breaks from reality. She eventually died during a severe bout of postpartum psychosis when Charles was only seven. He then went with his dad back to Illinois, And his dad was a man named Luther Gitto. Luther was a religious zealot who instilled in Charles a sense of importance, convinced his son was destined for great things. Unfortunately, Charles was an awkward, stammering child, and Luther believed in severe physical punishments for his son's failings. Luther was deeply devoted to a man named John Noyes, who founded a religious commune on the doctrine of perfectionism. The idea that with prayers, study, and discipline, humans can become sin-free and perfect here on earth. Noise had achieved this perfection, and now he was going to lead others to the same. This is what Charles was raised on, the idea that he could be perfect. And Luther really wanted to join Noyes' commune, but he had remarried after the death of Charles's mother, and the new wife said no. Two of Charles's siblings are particularly instrumental in his life. His older sister, Frances, who was like a mother to him, always protected and cared for Charles, and his brother, John, who was often frustrated and angry with Charles for reasons that will become apparent. Some account's suggest that Charles may have suffered from what we would probably recognize as an ADHD today. He couldn't hold still. There's a story about his father once telling him he would give him a dime if he could keep his hands and feet still for five minutes, but he couldn't do it. Even at an early age, Charles had an inflated sense of self-importance. He was pompous and he couldn't make friends. But he inherited $1,000, which is the functional equivalent of thirty k today, um, from his grandfather. And he went to Michigan expecting to attend the university there. But he failed the entrance, entrance exams due to what everyone describes as um, inadequate academic preparation. In other words, he just expected to get in, but he hadn't put in any of the work, so he flunked. It's possible his learning disability, if it existed, didn't help either. James Garfield is born November 1831, so he is a decade older than Guiteau. And his father died from an illness contracted while saving the family homestead from fire while James was only two. So both men have lost a parent at a very young age. But Garfield's mother was tough and she was determined to make it, and from her, her children learned the value of education and a positive but practical demeanor. She realized James was her brightest child, and she wanted him to further his education, but he went to work on the canals. After a near drowning, he changed course and agreed to higher education and was admitted to Williams College. His mother and brother proudly presented him with $15 that they had scrimped and saved to give him. He worked as a janitor at the school to pay for his education, but he was so talented that they ended up making him an associate professor of literature. After dropping out of school, Charles Guiteau went to live Daddy Luther's dream by joining John Humphrey Noyes' commune in Oneida, New York in 1860. If you know, you know. So if you just flipped when I said Oneida commune, yes, it's that one. The commune was founded on Noyes' idea of perfectionism, but also full communal living and sharing of everything. There were around 172 members and Noyes is credited with creating the term free love. Basically, they frowned on anything possessive, and that included exclusive relationships. He argued that because there was no marriage in heaven, there shouldn't be marriage on earth. Instead, couples practiced what Noyes called complex marriage, which was basically sex between any, new, any two consenting adults. Um, on one hand, he did raise women up to be more equal, they shared in the jobs and in everything. Children were raised not by their mothers, but by the commune as a whole. And women had an equal say. But he's not great either because he practiced a high degree of control over births, who was allowed to have children with whom, and eugenics. So all work was shared and this did not set well with Charles. He did not want to do his share of menial tasks, and he really struggled with one of their central tenets, humility. He thought that they should be just grateful for his presence, and he wrote noise a note, saying that God had sent him there to help noise, and therefore he shouldn't be expected to do such petty work as in the gardens and the kitchen. That's right, he wrote himself a get-out-of-work note by God. But once again, Charles was not popular. Women began calling Charles Ghetto, Charles Get Out. It's a sad day if you cannot get laid in a free love commune. He wasn't a bad-looking man, but his personality was repellent. The Oneida commune also practiced criticism time where members would sit in a room and others would basically give them feedback about their character and what they needed to improve to reach perfection. Charles couldn't stand this. I mean, how dare they? How absolute dare? He spent five years there. He left twice once he moved to Hoboken and he tried to start a newspaper there about the religion. But the only folks really interested were the ones who lived in the uh, perfectionism communes, in Noise's communes, and they already knew about him and about the religion. Again, he wasn't willing to pay his way for things either with money or with labor, so he starts suing Noise. He claims that Noise owed him money because he had been doing work for him. However, when they joined the commune, they everyone signed a document that they were performing labor for the good of the commune and not for compensation. Luther was really embarrassed and wrote Noyes letters apologizing. As for the commune, it eventually fell apart following the death of Noyes. His heir was his son, uh, who was agnostic and not interested in writing a religious commune. However, the community did continue its labor and reform as a joint stock company, Oneida Limited. If you're thinking, wait a minute, aren't those the silverware people? Yes. Yes, they are. Chances are that your cabinets have dishes and silverware from this company. When the commune dissolved, so did the idea of complex marriage. Within a year, more than 70 of the community members had married. In 1947, Noyes' descendants purportedly burned all of the group's records because they were embarrassed to be associated with the Free Love Commune. Now for Garfield, during the Civil War, he was a Union general. And he was a devoted abolitionist. He really put his money where his mouth is. Um, As I said, he went to war uh, on behalf of the Union he studies and he becomes a lawyer and continues his work to try and make voting an attainable right for all people. Uh, this is before law school was required. Charles also becomes a lawyer. You're gonna see a lot of parallels between the two men, but Guiteau takes the easier route. He works as a law clerk and takes the bar. The bar was administered to Guiteau by a man who asked him three questions, and he got two of them right. Ta-da! He was a lawyer. Not a great lawyer, but a lawyer. As someone who spent years in college and then law school and sat for a three-day bar exam, I'm not bitter at all. Charles drove the other lawyers who had the misfortune to cross paths with him nuts. He went to Chicago and opened a law firm and wrote up fake recommendations for himself based upon every prominent family he could think of. He only argued one case. So he took the easy route to becoming a lawyer and his family money set up his firm. But then he actually had to work. People hire you and they expect you to do work. Well, that doesn't suit Charles's ideal. So he makes his living in bill collections. People would hire him to collect their bills as a lawyer. He, Charles marries a woman named Annie Bunn, who was a librarian. And he was big surprise, not an ethical lawyer. Charles Guiteau kept most of what he collected and then didn't pay what was owed to clients. He would um, lie and say that he hadn't been able to collect on debts while spending all the money on himself. Annie was often left trying to explain to landlords where the money was because Charles was eating out at fancy places and buying expensive suits. Meanwhile, they were skipping out on rents and Annie often had to leave all of her belongings behind because Charles would drag her out of bed in the middle of the night to leave. He was physically and emotionally abusive. If she disagreed with him on the smallest thing, he would beat her. He once literally kicked her down the stairs in their apartment building in front of others. Sometimes he would waken in the middle of the night, just angry for reasons known only to him. And he would punish Annie for this by dragging her to the closet and shutting her in there for the rest of the night. During this time, they're living in Chicago, but he isn't paying his own bills. He isn't paying his clients. There are lawsuits coming down on his head and the cops are on his trail. So get out has to get out. Charles and Anne then move to New York. But by this point, Anne has had enough. No fault divorce isn't a thing. However, infidelity is. So Charles agrees to the divorce and to make this happen, he went to a sex worker and had sex with her And then she came into court and testified to this. So they were allowed to get divorced. In 1874, their divorce becomes final. This is when Charles begins to take an interest in politics. He first latches on to the Democratic Party and uh, Horace Greeley, who is running against Ulysses S. Grant. He gives this long rambling speech on behalf of Greeley, all on his own. And he's convinced that Greeley will be so grateful that when he is elected, he will appoint Guiteau as ambassador to Chile. Well, Greeley loses in a landslide. So, Guiteau turns from politics back to religion and to writing. Not sure if you can hear the quotation marks around writing, but you see, he wrote a book, except he didn't. He completely plagiarized a book on the theology and writings of noise. He tried to get the book published by one of the most prestigious publishing houses, but of course, it's rejected. Instead, he just pays to publish it himself. Or rather, he contracts to pay, but once he has the books in hand, no one will buy one. So he skips out on the bill. ghetto goes around trying to start a career now as a traveling preacher, but he gives these weird rambling sermons and no one's buying it. He's charging people to come and hear him preach and nobody wants to pay this weird unknown man to hear him preach. He is moving around, staying one step ahead of the landlords and the law. He's riding trains without tickets, arguing that he shouldn't have to pay because he's just a poor preacher. Sometimes he goes to jail for stealing or running cons. Dad decides that he is possessed by Satan, and so Luther tries to have him committed. But initially, Francis, his sister, uh, stays on his side. Meanwhile, Brother John is furious with having to clean up Charles' messes that he leaves behind. Finally, even Frances becomes afraid of Charles. She and her husband, George Scoville, who was also a, lo- a lawyer, allowed Charles to live with them. Um, George even tried to have Charles work with his law firm, but that was a huge disaster because we've already established Charles doesn't work. And he again became very violent when he is told no for any reason And he threatens Francis with an axe after not getting his way. So he's got to go. Francis and George had five children to take care of. They just couldn't have Charles there anymore. So he leaves and goes to Boston and tries to work there as an insurance salesman. But once again fails and has to flee because he owes a bunch of people money and is being investigated for theft. We see a pattern that the sense of entitlement is strong with this one. Charles leaves on a ship known as the SS Stonington. And this is a famous story because the Stonington and the Narragansett collide out over open water. The Narragansett burns. Stonington is able to make it back to shore, but eight 80, excuse me, not eight, 80 people die in that collision. And Charles is convinced that God must have spared him for a higher purpose. And he decides that this purpose is politics, again. Only this time he's a Republican. So in 1880, he starts out supporting Ulysses S. Grant for the Republican nomination, But once it's clear that this isn't going to happen, he switches sides and becomes all about the eventual nominee, James A. Garfield. Now, Garfield has also gone into politics, of course, and by this time, he is a congressman. Garfield never intended to run for president. Um, He had spent 17 years in Congress and He was at the um, nominating convention and was supposed to be giving a speech for a candidate. Now, the Republican Party had been firmly in control since the Civil War, but they were sharply divided and really in danger of shattering. The two main factions were the stalwarts and the half-breeds. We would consider that an offensive term these days, but just warning that is what they called themselves. The stalwarts were led by Senator Roscoe Conkling, and they liked the way things had always been done, and by that, I mean patronage. See the way of doing business was that after each election, everyone who was owed a favor or who had done things to help, would line up to receive the spoils. They expected to be rewarded with offices. They also, the stalwarts wanted to punish the South because of the Civil War. They wanted no reconciliation. And they looked at this as it was time to consolidate their power. And their candidate was Ulysses S. Grant, who had already served two terms as president previously. Now, the Salworths had a pretty good chance of putting Grant back into power because the incumbent president, Rutherford B. Hayes, had refused to run again. See, Hayes had been the half-breed's candidate, had come into the office determined to create a cabinet based on merit and to clean things up and do away with the old patronage system. And his idea was that the union could be strong again, only if everyone was brought back into the process. But Conkling and the stalwarts had just beaten Hayes down during the term of his presidency until he gave up and then refused to run for a second term. Now, Garfield, as I said, was only supposed to be a speaker at this highly contentious nominating convention, but Garfield, unlike Gateau, was a masterful writer and orator. During his speech, he paused to ask the question rhetorically, what do we want? And someone yelled in response, we want Garfield. At the end of the convention, he was a compromised choice between the two factions who decided that they did indeed want Garfield and he became the Republican nominee. He wasn't thrilled. He really did not want the job. His wife was very shy, and Garfield really loved their life out on the farm. He was a teacher, and he loved teaching and writing, and he wasn't excited that this would be the end of any semblance of privacy for him. Now, Garfield didn't actually campaign. He never gave a single speech on the campaign trail but the Republican Party campaigned for him. Now, this isn't quite as rare as you might think. Lincoln never gave a speech on his own behalf, but Garfield had some powerful leaders on his side. Uh, Frederick Douglass, former slave and humanitarian and activist, really campaigned for Garfield. And people would just sort of show up at Garfield's farm, and he would give little impromptu speeches out on his porch when people would come up but he never hit the campaign trail. Still, Garfield is very popular, and he is elected president. And he probably would have been a very good one if given the chance. But once again, Charles Guiteau messes everything up, and it's all about him. Because Guiteau has written a speech, and it is one of his patented Charles specials. By that, I mean weird and rambling. Uh, He had originally written it for Grant, But when it became clear that Grant was losing, he just switched names in the speech to Garfield. So it wasn't even accurate when talking about the man's life because uh, he literally just changed the names. Gateau delivers the speech twice to places that don't matter. And he prints some copies of the speech that he just hands out to people. Nobody cares. But in his mind, this means he is totally responsible for Garfield being president. And this means Garfield owes him. So, he goes to D.C. Now, March is when presidents were inaugurated at that time. And Garfield is sworn in as the 20th president of the United States on March 4th in 1881. The people start queuing up, hopeful of getting an appointment. Guiteau decides he would like to be consul to Vienna. And then changes his mind and decides Paris would be better. He sends up the most pompous letters. And he could really use the gig because he keeps moving lodgings in D.C. to stay ahead of the bill collectors and his landlords, whom he is, of course, not paying. He's telling everyone how he is going to marry an heiress. But really, he is stalking her and she is afraid of him because he is following her around. He doesn't have a good source of income at this time because menial jobs are just beneath him. So his clothes are wearing out and in March it is bitter cold. He keeps contacting Garfield's office, sending letters, but each time the answer to the consulship is no thanks. He is aware of appearances and even... This is funny. He'll go into the nicer hotels that he can't afford to stay at and steal stationery from there to send his letters on. So it looks like he's staying someplace nice. And he starts stalking Garfield. He's following him around. He shows up wherever Garfield shows up. He just cannot take no for an answer. He keeps showing up at the White House until he is recognized by everyone there. And at that point, he no longer gets to see Garfield because he is just being continually shunted away to keep him away from the president. By May, it is to the point where the Secretary of State, James G. Blaine, is so over Garfield that he barks out, quote, never speak to me again on the Paris consulship as long as you live, end quote. Well... This insult cannot go unpunished. Guiteau convinces himself that he was rejected for this post because he had been a stalwart. And therefore, the only rational solution is to kill the president. Because then, Chester A. Arthur, the VP, who is a stalwart and a disciple of Senator Roscoe Conkling, who is not allied with Garfield at all, will be the president. And Arthur will treat Gateau differently. Garfield is just going to ruin everything and people will probably thank him. Finally, his destiny is clear. He is going to remove the tyrant and he is going to be a national hero. So he makes a plan on how to best murder the president. First, Guiteau considers a knife, but he is small and scrawny and untrained, Garfield is exceedingly tall and very fit. Um, Garfield would tower over uh, people in groups. and He's very broad-shouldered, so Ghetto doesn't want to fight him. So gun it is. But he doesn't have a gun, and he needs to go and buy one. But there is the pesky no-money problem. So he borrows money from a relative and goes gun shopping. And he notes it's important to him that his gun be big and fancy because he just knows it's going to be in a museum someday. And it needs to look good. So he finds a British Bulldog revolver with ivory grips. Uh, But it's out of his price range. He finds one uh, identical, but it has wooden grips and it doesn't look as nice. He has to have the, uh, the ivory grips. Finally, the gun dealer takes pity on him and reduces the price to sell. So now Guiteau has a gun, and he has to learn how to shoot it. Because unlike Garfield, who'd been a soldier, Guiteau has no idea. So this takes him some time and some target practice. The first time he tries to shoot the gun, the recoil knocks him on his rear. Fun fact, that gun did go to a museum, but over time it got lost And nobody knows where it is now. So, where's your fancy gun now, Charles? Meanwhile, Gateau keeps stalking the president. In those days, the president would just walk around the city. There would not be any presidential protection until much later. Um, So, first, Guiteau follows uh, the president around to church and he even practices going and looking in the windows, inciting where he would shoot Garfield from. And so he plans to kill him there. But then he decides he wants to do it at the railway station where Garfield goes a lot. So he follows Garfield there to the, to the railway station. But Garfield actually has his wife with him. And he's taking his wife who would been extremely ill with malaria to the seaside for rest. Welcome to Not an Ad Break, where instead of discounts for luxury linens or mattresses, you get a word of the week. This week, our word is hogwash. Hogwash is something worthless or garbage. It's from the Middle Ages, where hogwash was pig slop. The wash was made up of kitchen scraps, especially in liquid form or with liquid added that was used to slop or feed the pigs. So the hogwash was something you did not want to swallow. The term morphed to mean bad liquor in the 1700s and then later to mean bad writing, especially if it was ridiculous or a worthless opinion. So next time somebody tells you that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie, you tell them that's hogwash. And now, back to our crime. The papers publish the president's schedule, so Gateau knows that Garfield will be catching a train on July the 2nd, 1881 at the Baltimore and Potomac Railway Station. He decides that this is the day and one last time skips out on the landlady. None of the other boarders minded seeing him go. He was rude and would grab the food, put down the ta- on the table and hog the dishes. He didn't care if anyone else got any in my house. That would get you forked. But he goes to stay in an expensive hotel for his last night and treats himself to a fantastic meal. He knows he won't be returning and so he won't be paying. He goes and waits to ambush the president. He gets his shoes shined and even arranges a cab to take him to the jail afterwards from the train station if he doesn't get arrested. All of this is something that is going to be used against him later to show his degree of knowledge of the consequences and his planning. Garfield is going to join his wife at the seashore, but first he has a meeting to attend. He's going there by train and then to the seashore. He walks into the station with friends and his two teenage sons when Guiteau comes up behind him and shoots at close range. The first bullet passes through Garfield's arm and knocks him down and he cries out, "'My God, what is this?' Guiteau shoots him again. This time the bullet passes through Garfield's spine and lodges behind his pancreas. And Guiteau shouts out, "'I am the stalwart of stalwarts. Arthur is president now!' Guiteau looks around and everyone seems mad. So he runs back to his cab that was going to take him to the jail, but he is tackled and held. Now, two of Garfield's friends and colleagues, James Blaine, his Secretary of State, and his Secretary of War, Robert Todd Lincoln, are there to take care of him and take care of the charge of the scene. Yes, Robert Todd Lincoln is the son of Abraham Lincoln, who witnessed, although not his father's shooting, his father's death and in a bit of trivia. He was also present at the assassination of William McKinley in 1901, making Robert Todd Lincoln the only person present for parts of three of the four presidential assassinations. Now, there is another famous shooting that occurs right after this in the papers. This is the same month that Billy the Kid, the famous outlaw and gunfighter who killed eight men before he was shot and killed at the age of 21, died July 14, 1881. But back to Charles. Now, uh, Garfield is lying on the ground bleeding badly. His secretaries are taking care of him. A police constable who is present has grabbed Charles. Charles Gateau is found to have a note in his pocket addressed to William T. Sherman, telling him that Garfield's death was a political necessity and that he is a stalwart of the stalwarts, and Sherman should bring his troops to take possession of the jail where Gateau is housed as soon as possible. Sherman did, but not in the way Gateau presumed. He didn't come to free him, but to keep the man from being hauled out and lynched. So Gateau reveled in his new celebrity. He was very excited and chatty. He repeatedly will tell his guards to stick with him because once he was vindicated, he would see them rewarded. He sent a letter off to the press announcing his plans to write his autobiography and join the lecture circuit. He was very angry that he was not allowed to read the papers because he wanted to see his name in print because he just knew everyone was talking about him and he was confident he would be acquitted of shooting the president because it was necessary and everyone would just understand. Now, Garfield wasn't dead, not yet. The bullet did not kill him. He lived another two months. And in Destiny of the Republic, uh, Candace Millard makes the case that he would likely have lived if he had been treated with our modern medicine or even modern medicine at that time, because although Joseph Lister's groundbreaking work in Bacteriology and the infection of wounds had been accepted in Europe for more than a decade, American medicine was still very resistant to the idea, including Dr. Bliss, who treated Garfield. In fact, it was infection that would kill Garfield. Imagine that, Americans who aren't believing science. Now, Garfield dies in September, and Charles Guiteau is then charged with his murder. And there is a problem because there is no attorney who is willing to represent him. So once again, sister, big sister Frances comes to his rescue and her husband, George Scoville, undertakes his defense, even though he's a patent attorney with little courtroom experience. But they try and try to hire somebody else and they can't. So, it's going to come down to George. During this time, Guiteau is busy writing his memoirs, which are published in the papers, including his special personal note, according to the Doug Linder article, and I quote, that he was looking for a wife and his hope that applicants for the job might include an elegant Christian lady of wealth, under 30, belonging to a first-class family. All right, Charles. Now, Charles is convinced that Chester A. Arthur is going to pardon him. He'll be released anytime. That doesn't happen. And maybe if he'd actually seen the papers, he would see that the public wanted a speedy hanging. He was so unpopular that one of his own guards tried to kill him. He actually brought in a gun and shot at Gitto, but missed. And the public responded by raising funds for the guard and his family. The guard would eventually be convicted and sentenced to prison time but to the public they considered the guard a hero. Right around this time there is another famous shooting. October 26, 1881 is the gunfight at the O.K. Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. I'm your Huckleberry. Now, the DA for Washington was a man named George Corkhill. He knew the defense would be insanity because of Gateau's behavior. The man was strange. The trial was scheduled for November. At the arraignment, Scoville dropped a bit of a bombshell. His defense was two prongs. First, that Charles Guiteau was legally insane, but second, that while he shot the president, he did not kill him. Garfield's death was the result of medical malpractice. This is not without merit. Perhaps Scoville would have had a better chance if Charles hadn't insisted on serving as his own co-counsel, because of course he did. He didn't do much to assist with the medical malpractice theory, but he was inadvertently helpful with his own insanity defense. He had outbursts where he would curse everyone in the courtroom, including his own attorney, the judge, the jurors. He would randomly break into song and just shout out his thoughts. However, he was also an impediment to his defense. He drew a line between legal insanity, and what Ch- Charles called actual insanity. Let's talk about legal insanity. The legal test for insanity is called the Monoton Rule, named for a Scotsman, Daniel Monoton, who assassinated a British civil servant named Edward Drummond in 1843. Minotin was delusional and convinced that he had killed the Prime Minister He was acquitted because he was, quote, laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know what he was doing, it was wrong, end quote. Following his acquittal, he was committed to an insane asylum. Uh, Most jurisdictions that follow British common law still use some version of the Monotan rule today. Guiteau became furious, if anyone dared suggest that he was delusional or actually insane. But he admitted that he was legally insane because, the Lord had temporarily removed his free will and assigned him the task he could not refuse. After evaluating everything, Scoville decided to just focus in on the insanity defense. He procured several experts who agreed with him, and the prosecution also got their experts. The facts of the assassination weren't really in question. This would be a battle of the experts. Scoville had an uphill battle in front of him too. The burden for an insanity plea rests on the defense. The prosecution only had to dis- establish that Gateau committed the act and then they would have to rebut the presumption by saying that Gateau understood the consequences and the unlawfulness of his conduct. Remember that while Guiteau thought he was going to be pardoned, He had arranged his own transport to jail after the shooting, just in case he wasn't arrested. So he certainly knew that the consequences of pointing and shooting the gun could be the death of James Garfield, and that he would be arrested for doing that. Guiteau would tell anyone within earshot that he had intended to shoot and kill the president. After all, he had spent weeks planning this, Stalking the president, choosing a gun that would look good in museums, he'd even bailed on that one attempt to do so, so he wouldn't be in front of Garfield's wife. Add this to the public opinion that Gatone needed a speedy execution, and you can see what Scoville was facing. For the prosecution, Corkhill hired the head of New York's Utica Asylum. Utica? Don't come for me, New York. I don't know. Doctor John Gray. They also hired Dr. Fortis Barker and prison physician Dr. Noble Young. For the defense, Scoville would rely on two men, Dr. James Kiernan, a Chicago neurologist, and Dr. Edward C. Spitzka, a New York neurologist. Doug Linder describes jury selection as challenging in FamousTrials.com. Quote, Many potential jurors claimed that their opinions as to Kiteau's guilt were fixed. He ought to be hung or burnt, one panel member said, adding, I don't think there is any evidence in the United States to convince me any other way. Ouch. That was my aside. Uh, Back to the quote. It took three days and the questioning of 175 potential jurors to finally settle on a jury of 12 men, including, against the wishes of Guiteau, one African American. The prosecution laid out their case methodically. There were numerous witnesses to the shooting and Guiteau's behavior before. He wasn't exactly subtle when he stalked the president. Secretary of State Blaine testified about Charles Guiteau showing up every day, demanding a consulship, Most dramatic was the testimony of Dr. Bliss, who demonstrated the results of the shooting by producing Garfield's spine in the courtroom. Yes, his actual spine that had been removed from his body. Jurors and spectators wept during the account of Garfield's torturous death over two months, and Bliss showed the spine with its shattered vertebrae to counteract any notion that it was his ineptitude that killed Garfield. The testimony was so dramatic that while being driven away from court that day, a drunken farmer named Bill rode up next to the carriage, stuck a pistol in through the bars, and fired. His shot went through Guiteau's coat, but it didn't hit him. So it's not looking good for Guiteau. The defense then puts on their case, and the star witness is... Charles Gateau. Throughout the trial, he had made his presence felt. Because he would shout and curse and sing, as I said, he would also write notes to spectators, consulting them regarding decisions. During Scoville's opening statement, which asked jurors to put aside their inflamed emotions and look rationally at the behavior of Charles as demonstrating his deranged mental state. Charles took umbrage to this and kept trying to shout down his own lawyer. I I have read the transcripts that were available to me and Scoville, for somebody without a criminal background and little courtroom experience, put on a very capable defense. He painted for jurors the picture of Charles Guiteau's increasing obsessions and odd behavior he brought out testimony regarding his own wife's efforts to have her brother committed and about Luther Guiteau's belief in faith healing and immortality achieved through perfectionism. This was important because Dr. James Kiernan would testify about hereditary insanity. Then Guiteau took the stand. His testimony was rambling and bizarre, He spent a lot of time talking about the Oneida commune and his grudges against them in great detail. He also depicted his political actions through his grandiose visions of himself as the master orator. He explained to the jurors that God had marked him as a man of destiny and it was God's desire that he kill Garfield. He was just the instrument. On cross-examination, he admitted that he had he expected this to boost sales of his book and that he would be able to lecture and even run for president in the future. Yes, Charles Gateau had plans to run for the presidency. Now, Dr. Kiernan did testify about Gateau's insanity and explained that someone could seem rational in some ways while being delusional in others. He tried to debunk the idea that insanity meant a gibbering madman, but on Cross, he admitted that he thought one in five people suffered from insanity of some form and he was considered discredited. Guiteau's main champion was Dr. Edward Spitzka, the New York neurologist. Spitzka was a powerful advocate because he testified that Guiteau was both insane and a bad person morally. The two are not mutually exclusive. See, the prosecution had really hung their hats on all of Guiteau's bad acts, such as being a con man and a wife-beater, to show that he was just a horrible person and not insane. Spitzka tried to convince them that someone could be both, and the real issue was insanity, which doesn't mean you're a good person or a bad person. However, Spitzka was convinced that he could spot insanity by someone's features such as Guiteau's lopsided odd smile. He believed that there was some congenital defect to Guiteau's brain that caused the insanity. He was sure that Guiteau's brain was malformed and that it was an inherited trait. This is problematic testimony of the sort that was used in favor of eugenics and forced sterilization. On cross-examination he had to admit that his first training had been in Veterinary medicine, although he had also practiced extensively on humans. The prosecution countered with Dr. Fortis Baker, who said there was no such thing as hereditary insanity, and Dr. Gray, who testified that Gateau was just lashing out from wounded vanity and disappointment. He said that Gateau had demonstrated too much planning and deliberation about the murder for it to have been a delusion or irresistible impulse. Dr. Noble Young testified about Guiteau's performance on intelligence tests and that he knew the difference between right and wrong. Closing arguments were exactly what you would think at first. The prosecution argued that Guiteau did not meet the legal definition of insanity. Defense argued that his entire life showed that he clearly did. Then Guiteau was allowed to give his own closing the prosecution initially objected, then withdrew the objection after fearing it might be a reversible error. Guiteau was just what you would expect. He ranted and warned to the jury that he was a patriot, and if they convicted him, the nation would be punished. He sang John Brown's Body, a Civil War tune popular at wild camp meetings, and compared himself to George Washington, and insisted that history would vindicate him for doing what needed to be done. Well, the jury deliberated one hour, and then they found him guilty, and the judge immediately sentenced him to hang. It took very little time to hear appeals back then. He was found guilty January twenty-fifth, 1882, and executed June thirtieth, 1882. There was only one appeal that was heard in May of that year, and the conviction was upheld. The defense appealed to Chester A. Arthur to uh, pardon Guiteau and send him to a mental hospital or at least stay the execution and allow them to appeal to the Supreme Court. Arthur refused to intervene and Guiteau was livid. He explained that Arthur had doomed the entire nation. Interestingly, Arthur who had been a stalwart and a disciple of Conkling after Garfield's death, sort of picked up the mantle and tried to act as Garfield would have wanted him to act and turned his back on Conkling. He wasn't a great president, but he wasn't a horrible one either. But as always, Guiteau decided that all of this was really just a chance for him to showcase his genius, and make a big splash. If he was going to be hanged, then he was going to use it as a platform. A punic not intended. First, he decides that he is going to come out for his execution in his underwear. I'm not sure what this bit of performance art was supposed to mean. Something about reminding folks of Christ's execution, But he changed his mind. The Altoona Tribune uh, from Altoona, Pennsylvania, on July 6, 1882, in an article, notes that Charles wrote out his last will and testament, leaving his body to Reverend Hicks, um, as well as a copyright to all of his writing. And that if any time hereafter, any person or persons shall desire as to honor my remains, they can do it by erecting a monument where shall be inscribed these words: "Here lies the body of Charles Gateau, patriot and Christian, his soul in glory. Rev. Hicks was a local pastor who had visited charles in, in in prison and been kind to him. Tickets were sold for the event of the hanging. 20,000 people applied for the opportunity, but only a couple hundred were allowed to attend. The morning of his execution, Charles wrote a 14 stanza po- poem to read. He wanted a full orchestra to accompany him, but that request was rejected. Instead, he recited the poem himself. It was called, I'm Going to the Lordy, and it was from the perspective of a young child So he recited it in a weird falsetto voice. At the end, he dramatically dropped the piece of paper he was reading from, like some sort of 19th century mic drop, and the hood was placed and the trapdoor sprung. Thousands cheered as Charles Guiteau died. His brother John was there as a witness. Frances was too overcome to be there. She had sent Charles a bouquet of flowers the night before. If you have heard of Gitto before this, odds are that you're a musical theater fan because Sondheim's musical Assassins has a character, Charlie, who sings On the Way to the Scaffold, a song that incorporates Guiteau's poem, Going to the Lordy. Yes, the lyrics that he sings are actually the poem that Guiteau wrote for himself. And It is better with music. Well, Guiteau's body was claimed by Reverend Hicks, who took pity on him. Now, because of grave robbing fears, which were not unfounded given the time, a secret grave site was procured. This was on prison grounds, but the officials became afraid that someone would take the body. So they dug it up themselves and then boiled it in chemicals so that it was a skeleton which they boxed up and put away because somehow that's better than having your grave robbed? I don't know. You can actually see his skull and what stands out are his teeth, which are horribly rotten and had to have been terribly painful. As for his brain... Well, everyone wanted to get their hands on his brain to see if they could figure out what was wrong with him. They tried to make a plaster of Paris cast of Guiteau's brain, but they found, quote, the organ was too soft because brains are squishy. So they cut the brain up into chunks. Now, Guiteau's brain did show some signs of syphilis, but not enough to say he was in terminal stages and his delusions were too long-standing to have been caused by syphilis. There wasn't any big obvious defect that they could see. Spitzka must have been disappointed because he had testified that he would easily be able to see the defect if given the opportunity. Of course, what we know now about mental illness is it's much more subtle than that. Today, uh, his brain, Charlie's brain, is still in the Mütter Museum in Philly, which displays medical history. Also, there is, they house this section of Garfield's spine that was used in the trial. Now, most modern psychology professionals that have examined the case have come to agree that Gateau most likely had some form of schizophrenia along with an antisocial personality disorder and grandiose ideology. So he had a whole cocktail of mental illness in addition to being just a bad person. September 6th, 1901, the 25th President of the United States, William McKinley, was shot at the Pan-American Exposition only six months into his term by anarchist Leon Salzgog. Oh, I knew I was going to do that. CZOLGOSZ, ZALSGOGS, who was inspired by recent assassinations of foreign leaders. Although McKinley, too, appeared as if he might survive, he succumbed to gangrene from one of the bullet wounds, which was to his abdomen. Now, that's three presidents assassinated in close succession. Lincoln in 1865. Garfield in 1881 in McKinley in 1901. Within a month, uh, Leon with the hard name was tried and executed. In the aftermath, the Secret Service was charged with a responsibility for protecting the president. And that is the story of The Forgotten Assassin. As always, you can reach me at writes at gmail.com. You can find pictures of Garfield and Coteau on my Pinterest board, which is at Marguerite Says. Also on my Facebook page, The Scalawags Podcast. And very soon on my new website. It is still under construction, but it's coming along. And the domain is TheScalawagspodcast.com. That is my cat fig in the background. Enjoy. But until next time, get out there and make some history of your own.